Good morning, Church Ohana. Welcome to Shorebreak. My name is Andrew. Uh, I get the opportunity to lead one of the community groups here at Shorebreak, and I'm excited to be in God's Word with you this morning. Um, let's go ahead and stay standing. Uh, if you would grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus 2, we'll read that together. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 22, so it's a bit of a chunk, but I know we'll be able to get it. Starting in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their, flock, their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Go and take a seat. Father God, we thank you for today, Lord. We thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that will... Um, give us the opportunity to see and to understand what you were doing in the life of Moses, Lord. I just pray that you would speak through your word, God, that you would put me aside and that you would just speak to our hearts, Lord, illuminate the scriptures to us this morning, God. Again, we thank you so much, Lord, for your intentionality to speak to us and to love us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, good morning and welcome to Shorebreak. Um, last week we began the book of Exodus with chapter 1 with Pastor Leo. Uh, so if you weren't with us last week, um, we'll recap a little bit there. But this week we, of course, are moving into chapter 2. 
we'll almost hit the entirety of the chapter. But before we start, I want to recommend one thing to you guys, and Leo recommended it last week as well, but I wanted to recommend the commentary, one of them that we're using in this study. Um, the reason why I do it is not because we're getting a kickback for recommending this or anything like that, but, but legitimately because it was a help to me, a huge help to me in my study, but also as somewhat of a devotional and really understanding and grasping what's going on in this passage. So do yourself a favor and snag Exodus Saved for God's Glory. It's a commentary written by Philip Graham Ryken. Um, so when you hear me use the, word, uh, the name Ryken today, um, I'm referring to this commentary commentary. It's not too academic to enjoy either, so just wanted to put that plug in there. Another thing I want to do this morning before we jump in the text is just to consider how we read Exodus. If there were ever really a collection of chapters in the Bible that become almost animated in our minds, I think it might be these chapters here. Part of that reason is because Hollywood has grasped the story of Moses. Um, DreamWorks animation has done it. Um, our Sunday school stories have really put this sort of animated feeling in our minds, at least in mine. And I think what we need to realize is that it's so crucial that we read Exodus with an understanding that it's not just fantasy. Why? Because if we don't read Exodus with that notion, we are reading just another feel-good novel that doesn't have the power to change our hearts and, and to love and know God more. So if we read this in its truth of God's amazing and sovereign plan for salvation, we finish the reading not wanting more of this feel-good novel like Lord of the Rings, but we finish rather wanting more of him and who he is. Riken in his commentary that I recommended, says, if the book is nothing more than a historical novel, it might make for interesting reading, but it would not have supernatural power to change anyone's life. And we gather here this morning to not just talk about a story, but we gather to talk about the overall overarching theme of what Exodus will be. Ultimately, the question we should ask ourselves before we get into the text is, are we reading these verses as a biography of what God has done? And as we read Exodus, remember that these characters are real. Um, these places and hardships um, and depression, chaos, they're real, and they were real to these people. And frankly, they apply to us today because they are ultimately also our story if we, play, if we pay close attention. Throughout the story of Exodus, we're going to see God's intentional plan to be with his people, the Israelites, and with Moses, who will lead them from captivity. And as we trust that intentionality of what God is doing in the book of Exodus, we see that the hero of Exodus is not actually Moses. Moses gets a lot of screen time um, when we think about the book of Exodus. And it's certainly not the Israelites, as we'll see as we move through these weeks, and their inability to be faithful to God. But the hero of Exodus is God himself. He shows that he has a plan. God shows that he is powerful to save. He shows that he's intentional and personal in the lives of his people. And he also shows that he's caring and loving to a very undeserving people. No one could accomplish what God did in Exodus. And no one could accomplish what he did outside of the book of Exodus. So those of you who were not here last week, let's recap a little bit what Leo shared. We see that there's a new pharaoh in the land, one who didn't know Joseph, uh, one with an evil hard heart toward God and the Israelites. We notice that the Israelites, um, in spite of being oppressed by the Egyptians, are actually multiplying and growing. That's a part of the covenant with Abraham God had, that they would be fruitful, they would multiply as a nation. Another thing is that um, Pharaoh is threatened because of that. 
The cowardice leads him to resort to infanticide, the killing of the sons of the Hebrews. And yet he puts this in the hands as a task of the Hebrew midwives who fear God, though. And they start to allow these Hebrew boys to continue to be born. And so when this plan doesn't work for Pharaoh, he commands that all of his people put to death the Hebrew sons. Be reminded that the Hebrew people are branded by God already at this point as part of his covenant with Abraham. And from the point when the Lord made that covenant to now, they have remained the same people. But God's faithfulness would continue to lead them. And we see the entrance of Pharaoh into the story as something that would come against and combat that plan that God had for them. And it's not that it was unexpected, though. God did tell Abraham that these people would find difficulties and hardship and affliction. But what the question is now is, how would they eventually get out? How would these people of God who were a part of the covenant with him eventually walk in life with him? You can imagine that some of the people in, of the Israelites were also asking themselves the very same question. When will this end? So fast forward now to a day where these people would not someday be in oppression, but that they currently were sojourners afflicted under the Egyptians, oppressed daily by ruthless tasks, and whose lives would be made bitter with hard labor. There seemed to be little hope for these people. Who could protect them from one of the strongest and most powerful nations in the world at the time, Egypt? It seemed hopeless. Yet, in the midst of all of this, God was intervening actively. And that brings us to our story today. So now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. I think one thing that strikes right off the bat is the fact that it says that he was a fine child. You know, why does it matter that he was a fine child? Does that, give more, does that elevate this child above all of the others that were being murdered in the Nile? Of course it doesn't. But there's got to be something a little different about this one if Scripture says that he stood out to his mother and if Scripture says that he actually stood out to God as well. Acts 7.20 says, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. I know that many of us in this room would have reacted very similarly to Moses' mother in protecting and defending this child. Yet there were difficulties in keeping him hidden. What if he cries out and neighbors hear? How would Moses' parents be able to keep up with the, the fast-growing child that Moses would be as he grew more active? What if he was discovered? So the day would finally come where Moses' mother would in fact not be able to hide Moses any longer, and so she reached the end of her own ability and strength and resources to be able to protect this baby, and she was forced to trust the only one who could, which was God himself. So she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. This was a resourceful mama. Um, basically what uh, bitumen and pitch is, is um, what is used to resurface roads, um, it gives us a little bit of idea, too, of where sort of the Egyptians were at about that time of technology as well. It's probably very similar to what we do with our roads today. But she caked this thing in, in that stuff, and she was about to set her child down to the river. This brave mother is not named here in this chapter. We'll see her named later in chapter 6 as Jochebed. She married a Levite man named Amram. She was not unlike any other mother in this room who loves her child well. There was no ease at what she was going to put that baby in that basket and send it out to the unknown. And again, I think if we pause and, and we think about this is not um, really, this is not a cute bedtime story. And we start to realize that a woman actually had to do this to her baby. 
we start to recognize the horror of the task. And I'm not a parent at this time of my life, but I am an uncle to nieces and nephews, and I can't imagine what it would be like to take a baby and place it in a basket and just trust that God is going to do something. In light of that, we might even see Jochebed, the mother, as irresponsible or possibly insane. Who would do this to a baby? But this was not a haphazard abandoning of her child. There was purpose in it that even she at the time could not understand, but that God did. This child would live, and he would leave others to life. Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. It's amazing that the faith of these parents is recorded now in Hebrews for eternity, in the words of Scripture. As the mother put this baby inside this basket, God's plan for freedom of his people was underway. In that commentary, Riken states so simply this moment. He says, At one moment in history, God's entire plan for triumphing over evil was riding down the Nile River in a little papyrus basket. God chose a little baby in a makeshift boat to eventually bring relief to an entire nation. It's just one reminder to us this morning of how God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Fortunately, Moses would not be in that water alone, both in the sense that God was with him, but also that his older sister Miriam would be watching from a distance to see what was going to happen to him. So some might wonder, what could a little girl do in this instance? in comparison to the decree of Pharaoh. You might think that she is insignificant, really, in the overall plan of God to bring this child to safety. Really, on the contrary, though, Miriam is a significant, important aspect of God's plan. It's this sister that eventually approaches Pharaoh's daughter and asks, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? It took a special wisdom that only God could give this little girl, Miriam, to approach the daughter of the most powerful man in the land. It was quick-thinking wisdom that would suggest that even a Hebrew woman would nurse this child, as the verses say. But what made her stand nearby to even discover what would happen to this baby in general? Why, why would she be so brave? Maybe it was curiosity. You know, maybe it was because she saw the boldness of her parents in protecting this special child that she had gotten to know for about three months. What would become of this baby. But whatever the reason for her wonder, she was bold enough to intervene. And it was again this young woman that God used to suggest a solution to Pharaoh's daughter for the life of Moses. I think something for us to remember now at this point of the story is that God is actively working in the lives of these people. They weren't happenstance accidents. They were intentional moves of the Lord to accomplish the plan that he had. We see it in the hearts of his parents, who would protect a baby at the risk of their own lives. We see it in the heart of his sister, who would use the wisdom that God gave her to enact God's plan. And now we see it in the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. It's interesting to me um, that in the story of Moses' upbringing, Pharaoh's daughter's heart is one of the most intriguing to me. Why does she behave the way that she does in this passage? She's at the river with her help, and she comes across this basket, and at first she couldn't know what was in this rough vessel. But as she looked inside, she would see 
inside a crying baby. And not only that, but a Hebrew baby. The verse reads, she took pity on him. And we have to know that the term in the Hebrew for pity here is not the type of pity we have when we hear uh, one of our nieces or nephews or our child crying, and so we give them some candy to kind of tide them over. It actually points more toward compassion and a literal sparing of one's life. In this moment, Pharaoh's daughter had decided she wanted to save this baby, much different than this aspect of just, oh, it's a baby, I have pity. As a daughter of Pharaoh, we can expect full well that she understood the current dynamic between the Egyptians and the Hebrew people as slaves. She had seen the infanticide. She had heard the decree to wipe out these slaves. So what was she thinking about having pity on this baby? And I know of no other realistic answer than that God was working in the heart of even Pharaoh's daughter. He had a plan to fulfill through Moses, and he would use one of the most unlikely characters to accomplish that plan. When asked the question by Miriam, Moses' sister, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? It would have carried a lot more weight with it than just, shall I go get help? It would have carried an underlying question more of, do you, daughter of Pharaoh, want to ultimately put your life and livelihood on the line for the sake of this one baby? And so this is why I rest and how the logic of this doesn't make sense to me why she would have this type of pity without recognizing that there is compassion that the Lord is giving her to complete his plan. It doesn't make sense for her to forfeit so much of herself for the sake of a baby who minutes ago was a complete stranger to her. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Corrie ten Boom or her book, The Hiding Place. April 15, 1892, Corrie ten Boom was born in Amsterdam. She was the, born the, the daughter of a watchmaker, and so she pursued the craft herself and actually became the first woman to be licensed as a watchmaker in the Netherlands. For to the year 1940, Nazi Germany would invade the Netherlands and bring with it, bring with it wicked philosophies of the Nazi party imprisoning and demonizing the Jewish people. But in spite of the danger of Nazi control and oppression, her father took it upon himself to protect and hide Jews in their home to keep them from danger. And similar to the example of watchmaking, Corrie ten Boom took on the example of her father to also protect these Jews and hide them in what became known as the hiding place, which would be their home. She herself would be imprisoned eventually for the work that she did with the Jewish people. She'd later be moved to a women's labor camp where a smuggled Bible would allow her to put on worship circuses at that camp. There are a number of similarities between Ten Boom's story and ours today in Exodus, but what I want to draw attention to here is that type of compassion is only given by the Lord himself. It's not a mistake that Ten Boom and Pharaoh's daughter, for that matter, were placed in such a time as theirs. Something to note is that God will use people for his plan to stand against evil and to risk their lives to see to completion what he desires to do. And I think these instances of compassion and exodus that we see do two things for us. One, they show us that God, who is providing this amazing compassion to the people in the story, is also a God of compassion. After all, it is his plan to start with, to free and enslave people from the oppressor. This was not Moses' plan. This was God's plan from the beginning. The second thing it does is it shows us that Moses was beginning to learn compassion 
firsthand from those around him. He saw it through his mother and his father, who preserved his life. You can imagine he would hear stories of how his life had been saved out of the Nile. He saw the compassion of his sister to intervene and boldly make a suggestion to Pharaoh's daughter. And he saw the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter, who would save his life from the Nile. Moses was being cultured by compassion, and it was a mold that he was being formed into that would play a huge part in what he would later do in freeing and oppressed people. You can imagine, uh, for you mothers out there, Moses' mother had a huge, huge task. She had only a few years to teach the boy to love God and to love his people before she handed him back over to the governing family who hated God and hated his people. It's as if she already could recognize the truth of Proverbs that says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6. Moses' life was covered with protection by the hand of God, and these events in his life were not uh, coincidental. I personally become fairly cynical in certain stories when people will say, oh, it's because of this or this, and it's, you know, drawing allusions to things that may not be incredibly factual. But consider this in this story. Moses was put on the very Nile that all of his peers were murdered on. He, he was found by, of all people in the land, the daughter of Pharaoh who made the decree to kill the children, who she didn't turn him over. She actually had compassion on him. And lastly, he was allowed to be nursed not by any woman, not by just a Hebrew woman, but by his own mother. This is not an accident. Theologian Peter Enns writes, Ironically, this child, once doomed to death by Pharaoh's decree, will become the very instrument of Pharaoh's destruction and the means through which all of Israel escapes, not only Pharaoh's decree, but Egypt itself. So, so Moses grew. And we don't have a lot from this passage that tells us what occurred in the 30-some years between when he was handed back to Pharaoh's family and when we see him reintroduced in the next passage. But we do read in Acts 7.22 this, in the interim, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So as part of growing up in Pharaoh's courts, Moses was likely, because of history tells us around 1500 B.C. or so, in Pharaoh's uh, courts, there was something known as the children of the nursery. These would be uh, foreign-born princes that received a high, high level of education. It's kind of a goofy name for such an uh, elite group. Sounds like we're talking about Keiki out here, children of the nursery. Um, but this group of men would include those who would be trained in many aspects of learning, from mathematics to astronomy, diplomacy, music, law. These guys had it. And Moses very well would have been one of them. He had the culture of Egypt at his fingertips. He would have lived an exclusive life of knowledge and superiority. And between the years that we last saw Moses and now, uh, Moses has grown to about 40 years old, uh, with decades of learning and molding from one of the most powerful nations in the world at the time. He was no longer this helpless baby boy floating down the Nile. He was, however, disconnected from his true family, the Hebrews, Things were different now, but what we will see is that there was something that began to catch Moses' heart in a way that riches and learning and training could not afford him. We read in verse 11, One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. The word used here in the Hebrew for looked 
is ra'a, which carries with it more of just what we use the word look as physically. It carries that as well as a notion of understanding what you just looked at. We are not told if Moses lived with his heart for his people um, through his adolescence and his adulthood, but what we do know is that inside him now is a turning of a heart of compassion for the people of Israel. The proof of his heart is that he actively looked on their burdens. The heart of a man who would one day lead these people from slavery was already being tenderized and put into action at this point in time. And think about how much there was to lose for Moses. He was not only in safety compared to the Hebrews, but he also would have had the superior place even amongst the Egyptians. Those elite and educated in Egypt really grew in this, in this one thing, uh, or up in this dynamic. One of the primary goals of Pharaoh's educational system was to reinforce the pride of those in power. They were built to be prideful. Amongst the Egyptian elite, they looked down on manual labor, as the Hebrews were doing, but they uplifted the importance of study. They were being trained to be arrogant, educated, with little to no compassion for the common man. So this was Moses' new family. This was his new reality. The, B- the book of Hebrews sums up the battle for Moses in this way. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Moses had a decision to make. Whether his life would be about the fleeting pleasures of sin in Egypt, wasting his life away, or would his life be worthy of a calling that only God could give him? And we will get the answer by reading on in Exodus, but we also see how Hebrews handles it when it says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking toward the, to the reward. So as Moses was looking on the burdens of the Hebrews, as our passage says, he notices an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrews, and Moses reacts. It's possible that it's from um, anger that he had just building up inside him, but more than likely, it's because he had been seeing the injustice of the people underneath the oppression of Egypt. So Moses takes matters into his own hand. It's evident that Moses was seriously affected in this sense because what would drive him to the extent of murder? So verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. This is a curveball for Moses' life. I'm sure that he didn't get up that morning expecting to take the life of an Egyptian. But the reality is he had now murdered and sinned against the Lord. We realize that Moses was aware of his wrong as he tries to hide the body. But there are no excuses for Moses in his action, as some might want to justify. We must see that Moses had disobeyed God here. Sometimes I might elevate the patriarchs of the Old Testament to a place of almost perfection, thinking, if I could just be like them, you know, this would be easier. Walking with the Lord would be easier. But Moses was not immune to the effects of a wicked heart. Moses sinned. Moses struggled. Yet what we can be grateful for in this instance is that while his heart felt wicked things at times, his heart also felt in good ways. His heart felt in ways of compassion, while his heart also felt in anger, it had sympathy for hurting people. It was vastly different than the Pharaoh at the time. 
God was willing and desirous to use the sinner Moses for his plan. It's extremely evident that Moses is a sinner here. And part of the human heart, I think, sometimes desires to see his action as noble or helpful. I mean, Moses is just sticking up for what is right, right? Maybe similarly to the way his mother did for him, or the way that Pharaoh's daughter had made attempts for justice. Some commentators even go to the extent to defend Moses' actions, as if when we read, he looked this way and that and seeing no one, it's actually implying that there was no one to do justice in the land. But we see a different message from this situation, and that's namely that Moses would be the savior of the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but he would not do that on his own strength. God surely had called Moses to minister to his people but it's going to be in God's timing, and it will be in God's power that that's done. So the consequences of Moses' sin here are very vivid, and they're rapid. It took one day for people to know that Moses had murdered. As Moses looked on the people the next day, there was a quarrel between two Hebrews, and this would drive to a conversation where um, Moses would intend to intervene. But a Hebrew would answer back, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Imagine the anxiety that Moses would have had as he heard those words come out of his mouth. The matter was known. Sand wasn't enough to cover this sin. Moses, at this point, had lost the respect of the Hebrews, and to make matters worse now, Pharaoh desired his life. So in one day, Moses' leadership was stripped from him. His call to lead his brothers to slavery seemed derailed. So what was Moses to do now? He flees to the wilderness. So Moses is now in the wilderness, but God is still in control and hadn't given up on Moses. Removing Moses from what was known to him and comfortable in the Egyptian elite, he would bring him to the desert for 40 years before he called him back into Egypt to free the people. I'm reminded of this truth that God knows just the right way to discipline those that are his. In Moses' case, it was a complete loss of his life before. He lost his position in Pharaoh's court. Moses lost any good standing he might have with the Hebrew people, at least in part. He also lost what appeared to be a rags-to-riches story in all of Egypt. Right now, for Moses, it just appeared to be a rags-to-rags story. But God's plan for Moses and his people would not falter even as a consequence of Moses' sin. Sure, there would be consequences of his sin, but even in this, Moses would learn that God was redeeming his life and purpose. So I guess we can take a pause here and ask the question, what was God doing in Moses' life? It seems as if the plan is now going backwards. He's now 40 years old, escaping into a wilderness, with only the clothes on his back. He went from riches and honor in Egypt to destitute loneliness sitting next to a well in the wilderness. Even Moses, this man who was so intentionally a part of God's plan, would now have to learn how to trust God with his failures and with his entire future. Would God be faithful to Moses? Was there hope? It's been quoted Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something. He was 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And he was 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. This was Moses' 
humility moment. He was going to be humbled in the wilderness by God. He'd be stripped of his previous identity as a child of the nursery and would become instead in the wilderness a man of God. We then see an interesting scene take place at the well in Midian. Moses really doesn't waste any time in again assuming the role as protector as he sees a number of sisters with their flock who are being oppressed by the shepherds, uh, treated unfairly, um, probably just allowing them to fill up the troughs, and then they'd bump them over, and now it's our water. Um, the scene takes place at the well. It shows the faithfulness of God to continue his work in Moses' life. Uh, Moses would continue to act as a, as a role of protector, defending these women. And really, it would be a precursor to what Moses would do for work until God called him back after the end of 40 years. Moses would become a shepherd in the wilderness. So for Moses, he just made about the biggest career leap um, that one can make in his position. He went from high echelon scholar in Egypt to now lowly shepherd in the wilderness among a people that he did not know. A phrase that would have been common to the Egyptians at the time and probably common to Moses, possibly, was every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Yet this is just one detail on how God is over time humbling Moses to become his man. It would be Moses' personal wanderings in the desert that would teach him how to navigate the wilderness both physically and spiritually. He'd soon become a shepherd to the people of God, leading them through the wilderness as well. So ultimately, none of this wilderness was wasted on Moses. But his life quickly started to look like a detour from what he probably thought it would. What about our lives? Maybe our life at this time doesn't look quite like we thought it would at this age. Maybe we're working a job that is sucking the life out of us. Maybe if you're single, you're still waiting on that Zipporah to come into your life. If you're married, you've begun to think that your spouse is not satisfying everything you thought they would be. But I want to encourage in this. What might God be doing in your life right now? This may be your personal wilderness that he is leading you in to prepare you for something down the road. Marriage or singleness, executive or minimum wage, God is using these things in your life to shape you in spite of your weaknesses. I'm encouraged by this. And Moses' story, while it's not our story, our story is not unlike Moses' story, though, in that God is working all things out for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. So take heart that God is the same story, uh, God is the same God of this story. He's faithful to finish what he has started. Keep this in mind. Moses would be 80 years old before God chose to use him for his purpose of freeing his people. 80 years old. Like, talk about waiting on your ministry. <laughs> There's an aspect of biblical study called typology, and we won't go deep into it, but in a nutshell, typology is referring to really the, concepts, uh, the concept of figures in the Old Testament pointing toward a figure or uh, a person in the New Testament. Um, that's a real makeshift explanation, um, but for today, that's where we'll end on that. It, will go, it goes way deeper, but you may see, sometimes hear of Moses being referred to as a type of Christ. In other words, Moses' life and purpose were reflecting the future purposes of Christ. How is that? Well, there are a number of items that we could go into in looking at the similarities between Moses and Jesus. It's a separate sermon, in fact. But for today, what I want to highlight is this. 
Moses was called to obediently sacrifice his own life for the safety and freedom of his people. Jesus obediently sacrificed more to the greatest degree. And the reality of a type, unfortunately, is that it simply is not complete. You know, there are aspects of a type that do not satisfy for the model. And we need to realize that while Moses is a good example of the true servant to come, he is not the end. He was incomplete. He was flawed. He could not satisfy the ultimate sacrifice that God saw necessary to fully save the people of the world. Moses left the pleasures of Egypt while Christ left the eternal treasures of communion with God the Father. It reminds me of Philippians 2, where we see that Christ's humility is shown in that he did not consider his being God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he came to the earth in the flesh and he died even a death on the cross. And as I consider really the truths of Moses, I can't help but think of how faithful and powerful God is. But our hope is not in Moses. Our hope is in the person and work of Jesus Christ that he points to. It is through Jesus Christ that God will ultimately free the world from sin and death. He would redeem the lost through Jesus Christ. So we can rest in this truth displayed here in Exodus 2, that God's plan of redemption is not passive. It's mind-blowing to think about even before the Hebrew people were ever in slavery, God knew that a man named Moses would be the one to draw them out of Egypt. What's more is that even before that, God had planned for the ultimate salvation of the world through his man, Jesus Christ. Just notice, um, if you look down at the passage, we've only made it to verse 22. Uh, we're not going there until next week, but if you were to read on, you'd see that God's mercy is not reactive only, and that he knew the Israelites' struggle and heartbreak before their cries ever reached his ears. He was working this plan of Moses all along, from a little baby on the Nile, who would make it through amazing circumstances to fulfill the plan that he had all along. It reminds me of what God has done in Christ for us, even before the world was born. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And I mentioned this at the beginning of the message, that these realities in Exodus are also our realities as well, if we pay close attention. Exodus has been referred to as the gospel of the Old Testament, and for good reason. We are in for a treat and in the weeks to come and just seeing how faithful God is to an undeserving people. We also have been in bondage to sin and death before Christ. Like the Hebrews, we have lived in fear and the shame of sin. Like these Hebrew people in Exodus, we have been murderers in thought and heart. We have been worn down by the labors of our misguided efforts. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what Moses is ultimately pointing to, the true servant, Jesus Christ, who has saved those who believe and trust in him. God does not redeem by accident, and it's in his perfect timing. He's going to prove his patience to see his plan through time and time again, as we will see in the coming weeks and months. Just be reminded that God is committed to his covenant with his people, which began with Abraham and will continue under the leadership of Moses. So in closing, Riken in that commentary states, in salvation 
God satisfies the deepest longings of the people he plans to save. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God is doing what is best, not only for his people generally, but for you personally? It can be hard to trust at times, but it is true. He is working all things out for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He did it for Moses, and he'll do it for those who love and trust him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness. God, we thank you that you made a plan, Lord, that we may know you. God, we thank you for the life of Moses, which so well reflects the life of a sinner, the life of a man who was redeemed, Lord, for your purposes. And God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we thank you for the work that he has done on the cross, Lord, the forgiveness of sins, Lord, the redemption through his blood. And God, we thank you that this is not an accident, Lord, that you did this intentionally and lovingly and purposefully to save an undeserving people. Lord, I pray you would build in our hearts a desire to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.